Thanks for downloading this podcast from The Rock of York. We hope it inspires you. If you have any questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. You can get in touch with us on Twitter, at The Rock of York, or search for The Rock of York on Facebook. And of course, there's the website at www.rockofyork.co.uk. But you probably already knew that. Here's something you might not know. Okay, um, so there's no way that we can recap over last week, is there? No. So if you weren't uh, with us, you know, you can listen online. Um, but just to give you a, a brief um, little setup for what we're talking about is how there are many words that we come across in the, what you would call the Christian language or Christian experience, which can mean lots of different things. And um, we've learned over many months how different words that are used can have uh, different meanings. And the word that came to me today was how a trajectory is so important. Trajectory. Um, For instance, let me just give you an example. If you hear the words of Jesus as the gospel of salvation, it's all going to be sin-based with then salvation has been forgiven of your sin with once you are forgiven then heaven is the destination that's going to be the trajectory whereas if you hear the words of Jesus as the gospel of the kingdom it's more to do with there and then him giving words of warning to the people of that age about what was coming and if they would only heed the words he was saying for instance he said flee to the mountains Uh, then you will be saved. The word saved means a totally different thing from saved. If you say the sinner's prayer, believe on Jesus, you will go to heaven. Isn't it amazing how you can say those things so quickly? I hope that made sense because it sort of came out. Um, Just before I carry on, making sure that you understand, we said that this is the lab which we are not going to mess with little simple things. We are going to get down to stuff that, um, you know, we've been... Let me, let me just say this. I was brought up a futurist, and many of you were raised futurist, which means all the stuff that was in the Bible that talked about the end times and various things, it was all to come, and it's in the future. Um, And so when I start talking about it being different than that, believe me, I've had to literally be, you know, you know, what's the word, contorted or, or, or pushed into something because it wasn't my first uh, teaching. It's a bit like this, you know, how, how do we put our hands together? What is our natural way? And I was taught... Uh, that very much the the, the uh, predictions and the prophecies were still to come and uh, nothing had taken place already, it was all to come. So when I am bringing you this alternative, uh, it's not that it's the easy way, because I'll be honest, I have come from the old, but once we start deciding that some of this doesn't quite fit, you have to be then willing to say, okay, let's be humble enough uh, to have a look, have a look at all of this. Now, um, we used a couple of scriptures 
last week. I know that wasn't a very good recap, but I hope it suffices. Um, we, I, I, I jump about, so you'll, you'll, I think you'll get me. For instance, I mean, let me just go here. Somebody asked me a question at the end when it, uh, about the old covenant. If we're not careful with this futurist idea, when it comes to the temple which got destroyed in AD 70 at the fall of Jerusalem, if we still have a futurist idea, in order for certain things to happen, the temple has got to be restored. That means the Muslim temple that's on the site of the Jewish temple, you know, is it the Mosque of Omar, do they call it? I'm sorry, I don't know the, the name. What's the Muslim mosque? It's the, temple, it's the Mosque of Omar, isn't it? Anyway, whatever. It's there anyway. It's actually on the old Jewish site of the temple. It exists. That, that's where it is. The only thing that remains is a piece of the old wall where when you see the Jewish people line up and they're all doing the, you know, the bow and into the wall, they do all their prayers. That's actually the only bit that remains of the old Jewish, Jewish temple. Now, the thing is, if we believe that these things that haven't happened are going to happen for instance like we talked last week about um the, the and, and i'll give you the scripture it talked about the 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 man of sin this guy here was to, would set himself up in the temple if that hasn't already happened it's still to happen but that means the temple's got to be there in order for the man of sin to set himself up in it now follow me. That means then that this mosque, which is presently on there, which is Muslim, must be torn down. A new temple has got to be raised up. And then we can get to the point where potentially this person, whoever he is, can set himself up as God. However, we may prove that it actually has already happened. Now, what was funny last week, I mentioned this guy called Titus uh, Flavius, which got great giggles at the back of the church and uh, I was saying you naughty people laughing at poor old Titus Flavius but actually we can and we're gonna we could talk about this on a full session it's quite amazing to talk about this emperor of Rome called Titus Flavius who was actually the son of Vespavian Flavius who actually between them, father and son, there were almost a carbon copy of God the, the father and God the son because they even had one name. They didn't have two names. They had one name for both of them. I mean, really quite weird. And they were so powerful that basically at this time, they went into the temple, this wonderful, fantastic temple in the middle of Jerusalem, um, and they set up an image of themselves in which they were worshipped, right? Now, you could say, no, 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 that was then. The real thing is to come. But I could say, no, that's already happened. Now, you don't have to believe me. You can carry on with your own thoughts. But if we believe it's for the future, can you see how difficulties are created? Because like I say, the old, this Muslim temple's got to be torn down and the Jewish temple must be then erected. It, it doesn't bear thinking about, doesn't it? Now, I'm not saying that that isn't the way. Like I say, this is the pot. Do you understand? Uh, but, 
I want you to understand that if we're not careful, if you hold a futurist idea, it can, it can make you very war happy. Because when the Bible talks about in the last days, there'll be wars, there'll be famines, there'll be earthquakes, there will be all this, that and the other terrible things. It can make you want that because it suggests, oh, Jesus is coming back. Yeah, hooray! But actually, no, we shouldn't be wanting that. We should be saying no. What we want, if, if Jesus is the Prince of Peace and of his kingdom and there will be no end, surely him coming back should be to the kingdom that actually expresses who he is, not what man has become. Does that make sense? And so when he, if we think about it, um, when Anth talks about regularly about the mischief, even in the context of our understanding of end times, there comes a mischief that in our minds we can even be deceived to want something, i.e. war. I remember going back years and years, as I say, I was brought up a futurist, that the moment that there was any idea of the third world war, oh, Jesus is coming again, and you think, where has that come from? And I'm being honest, it shows that there's a mischief that actually makes you positively embrace those sort of thoughts because of this religious idea when that's the last thing that we should be doing. Now, I'm not saying in any way that there isn't a future return, but I'm being very careful. I don't know what that looks like and I'm not even sure that that is right, but I'm saying I'm not wiping it away. What I'm saying, we've got to be careful that we don't get bitten by the mischief. That is, is that making sense? Okay, so we used a scripture last week uh, which talks about, which was this, Matthew 16, 27, and I'm only going to quickly read these out so we can move on to tonight. For the Son of Man, this is Jesus speaking, is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what they have done. Truly I tell you, some of you who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Jesus was saying that. Therefore, if he's talking about the coming, second coming of Christ, it would have to be within, what, 40 years of those people who were there. Because you can't have, I tell you the truth, some of you who are standing here will not taste death before this happens. Right? So whatever Jesus was talking about was going to happen in the next 40 years. I think that's clear. Unless we decide, well, it's all a load of rubbish anyway. We can't believe any of it. But let's just say we're going to at least take the words of Jesus and try and make sense or interpret what he is saying. So clearly Jesus is talking about something that was coming shortly within 40 years. So when people talk about Matthew, and particularly Matthew 24, um, as being the end time doctrine, we've got to be careful because Jesus is actually saying that within 40 years, this potentially could happen. Right, there's another scripture, and then we're going to move on to what we're going to uh, talk about tonight, I think. Um, Matthew 24, 22, it says this, So when you see, standing in the holy place... 
The abomination that causes desolation. Again, these are words that are a bit crazy. But the abomination that causes desolation isn't that poetic. I mean, it's fab, isn't it? But what it really means is, in, in another translation, it's called the man of lawlessness or the man of sin. It's somebody who represents an, the antithesis of Christ or the antithesis of the Jewish order or, or anything that stood for what they believed was right. He was going to set himself up in the temple, right? He says, when you um, see him standing in the holy, excuse me, standing in the holy place, which was the temple, let the reader understand, um, let those that are in Judea, and remember this is being said to Judea. He's saying those in Judea. So it must have been something that was happening around that time. Um, flee to the mountains, let no one on the housetop go down to take anything out of the house, let no one in the field go back and get their cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that your flight will not take place in winter or on the Sabbath, for then there will be great distress unequaled from the beginning of the world until now and never to be equaled again. Now again, there's something there that's interesting. It's saying that the end times cannot come until this guy stands up in the temple. So we're back to what I said at the beginning. If it's future, we've got to wait for this guy to set himself up in the temple that at this moment doesn't exist. So it has to be built. But if we go back to AD 70, the temple was built and we do have historic um, evidence that this emperor did actually set his image up in the temple in order to be worshipped inside the Jewish temple. We actually know that was a fact. So we can say, actually, it's probably already happened. Now, let's move on. Um, right, I've said all that and I've said all that, said all that, said all that. Now, the thing is, I don't know about you, but this man of sin, if we take a futurist look, uh, where is he? He's here. Um, I don't know about you, but from my childhood, and it probably was childhood, or maybe slightly older, but can you remember who you were told potentially could be the man of sin? Come on, let's play a game. Eunice, Hitler, right, there you go. Any more offers? Who was told potentially could be? I see we've come away from all of this in this house, but I was one of the, one of the ones reared on it. What about Henry Kissinger? Do you remember? Henry Kissinger, he definitely was it. And he was even more likely to be it because he was a Jew, you see. And because of he was a Jew, he was more likely then to be a bit of a twisted character who would say one thing, but then be something. Oh, do you not remember this? Anybody else? Come on, Dave. Did you have a... a it, yeah, but the Antichrist was the antithesis of Christ. But who? You know, it was, there was people, weren't there? All the way along, oh, it must be him, it must be him. Really, it's the truth. And that was my, my upbringing. But you see, what it does, it gets you on a trajectory. This is what I'm trying to say, looking for who is the one who is going to set himself up and it meet marks. I mean, I reckon nowadays, we're not in those circles anymore. But no doubt, doubt the 
Microsoft guy could be it, or the, the head of Apple could be it, or Obama could have been it, you know what I mean? Especially since, you know, we, we, we said in another study what his name meant. Um, I can't remember now, but we talked about it, didn't we? Anyway, okay, what I want to talk about tonight is, is uh, moving on, and I said last week we're going to talk about this here, death. Um, because I think you'll find this very interesting. And like I say, I'm just um, wanting to throw my ideas into the pot. It doesn't mean by any means that I've got it all right, but I'm going to go with it. We, we have talked about the fact that there are uh, words mean different things. So like we said about the devil, Satan, they're not necessarily a cosmic entity, but they could represent the inclination of man's heart, or even it could be a, a system that is oppressive, an oppressive system, right? Um, we know that the, that the specific words means uh, adversary and, and it means a, a, an accuser. So in Luke 10, when Jesus say, said, he saw Satan falling like lightning from heaven, that doesn't give us proof that he, said, that he is saying there is a person called Satan that he saw falling from heaven. We assume, and when I say we, the evangelical mainstream movement somehow get the idea he must be thinking of Ezekiel and Isaiah, the only two scriptures that are there that sort of give the idea that the devil, Lucifer, is a fallen angel. But that not be necessarily true. He might be using the word Satan in its purest form that says, I saw the adversary, the accuser, fall like lightning from heaven. What does lightning do? It falls, it goes. That was good, wasn't it? Hey, Sarah, it's nice to have you home. I've only just seen you, babe. Nice to have you back. Right, so did you get me? So it's more to do with I saw the adversary fall from heaven. He's saying, this is what's happening to the system, to the anti-God, to the oppressive thing. It's falling. Not, and we get our eyes on Satan. Oh, who is he? Is he you know, are you following me? Rather than he, he's fallen, it's been done, done away with. So in Acts 10, 38, there's a lovely scripture that says, Jesus went around healing all who were oppressed by the devil. Now that's an interesting statement. All who were oppressed by the devil. Now again, we can see that that could be in the context of who are the people that have come under a system that makes them so crushed and oppressed that in the end Jesus goes to heal all those that are oppressed. Do, do, do you see what I mean? But it doesn't have to be the devil as in a being. But anyway, we've looked at all that, haven't we? Um, there's another scripture which is interesting. Romans 6.20 says this, um, the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. Now that's interesting because if Satan is a being, and Paul saying, I'm believing Robbers is written by Paul. I don't really know. Um, either we're talking about a person to be crushed under, our, under their feet, or it was going to be something of a system crushed 
under Fitford. I, I, I just, I'm throwing it in the pot. Does this make sense? Right. So, it's, and it said as well, remember the word that we said at the beginning that Jesus said, some of you will still be alive when these things happen. Here we have again the term shortly, soon these things were going to take place. So here's the thing. What was the adversary or the accuser of Jesus and the early church? Just think about it for a little minute. Take away a being and use the word accuser or adversary. What was the adversary and what was the accuser of Jesus and the early church? It was, it was the, well, you can have Rome. Yeah, you can have Rome. I'm happy with that. But you've got systems, haven't you? But the religious system, the Pharisees, the scribes, who were the ones who were saying, you can't do that. You can't do this. And they constantly were looking ways to bring accusation against him. Right. So who was Satan and who was the devil with Jesus and um, the early church, it was actually the religious system of the time. And I agree the Romans played a part in it, but we, can we maybe just keep them a little bit separate for tonight? We can talk about that another time. Now, we have to be very careful that this doesn't become like an anti-Semitic talk. It's not. But we're just trying to isolate that, again, when we talk about words having meanings, different meanings, we've got to allow us to get into the spirit of what's been said because sometimes if we go too specific down the line again trajectory takes you another way so here we've got basically understanding that the, the 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 religious system was what was the adversary and the accusers of Jesus and the early church and there's many scriptures to confirm and I don't really have to go through them all but you can always have a look yourself. But we know that constantly accusation after accusation was being brought against Jesus in order to find a way even to kill him. That's what it says. They wanted to kill him, right? Now you think, heck, this, well, no. It's what we have all the time. Religion against religion, isn't it? Jesus turns up, he's a Jew, He's talking in a language that the Jewish mainstream, hello, don't understand. And what happens? They decide, I don't like the sound of this. We want to get rid of him. Isn't that what's going on all the time? Yeah? So it's nothing new. I mean, I was sort of sounding surprised. But actually, it's not. It's nothing new. And then, of course, we even uh, get to the point where they're saying to him, by, by whose power do you do these things? You're of your father, the devil, basically. You're doing it out of the spirit of Beelzebub, which is, the, you know, you're calling on Satan to help you do these works. That's the level of accusation that was thrown by the religious people against Jesus. I mean, that's quite a, amazing, isn't it? So finally you get Jesus brought to Pilate, and even Pilate, who even says, I find no fault in this man, goes out to the Jewish people and says, okay, look, I can't find anything wrong, but what's the accusation that you bring? And they said, well, he says this, that, and the other. Okay, then. <laughs> Are you following me? So it was all to do with accusation and 
adversarial attitude that, that, that was going on. And even in, when it gets to Paul speaking in, in his epistles, he's constantly talking about, and I mean, it doesn't often use the word, but it's often that uh, he, he does in Romans 15, 22, but you don't need to put it up. But it's talking in connection with when he felt that he was hindered in a certain area or not able to go places, he often said, Satan has hindered us. Now, was he meaning that pitchfork Satan had hindered him? No, he was meaning the system, that which um, accuses, which is adversarial, was getting in the way. So am I, am I making sense with that? Then we've got something that's very interesting. In Revelations 2 verse 9 and 3 verse 9, we have, and I, and I love this, and we've got to always remember that the book of Revelation is very uh, um, cryptic, yeah. And um, I do believe what Joel brought where it's, uh, it's talking much in a coded message with a warning for the people at that time in ways that they could understand, which described the Roman emperors, the seven seals, the seven mountains, all of that. If you actually see Revelation as that, it makes more sense that if we're trying to push it into the future, and oh, I mean, heck, but we'll talk about some more of that another time. But in Revelations 2, the Jewish system, guess what it's called? The synagogue of Satan. Hello. I've never seen that before. And I've been, I'm 59 for crying out loud, but I've never seen that. So the Jewish system is called the synagogue of Satan. Now, are we talking about a satanic temple? No, it's the system. It was the synagogue of accusation, synagogue of adversary, uh, adversarial behavior. Now, why? And it makes complete sense because they were law-dominated. And when you are law-dominated, what are you going to do? You're going to accuse. You're going to be adversarial. And until you get things done the way that you think they should be done, you're not going to let the, the thing go. Does that make sense? So that's why in, in Revelations, the Jewish system, now you notice I did not say the Jewish people. I said the Jewish system um, was called the synagogue of Satan. Now, moving on then. So we've got this incredible picture of the adversary then being the Jewish system. Now listen to what it says in 2 Corinthians 4 because I think this is just amazing. Um, are we going to put it up? Ooh. Yeah, 2 Corinthians 4, 3 please. And keep it up, because I think we're going to just do a few verses there, but I don't, don't know which. <laughs> um, and even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers, so they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Now, that's an incredible verse. First of all, we've got references to the God of this age and we've got blinded minds, which I always thought was blinded eyes, but it's blinded minds. Now, isn't that interesting? Does it say minds up there? Yeah? I can't even see it from here, but never mind. Okay, and we're, we're going to talk about the veiled bit in a, in a minute, 
But let's talk about the God of the age. Who was speaking here and to whom were they speaking? They're talking about that age and what was the God of that age? Now, I've heard that scripture used many times in the here and now. The God of this age, as, and I've always heard it, has blinded their eyes so they cannot see the truth, right? But what we have here is the God of that age has blinded the minds so that they cannot see what? The light of the gospel. So what was the God of the age? Now, if it's a veil that had covered not just their eyes, but their mind in the sense that they couldn't understand and it, they couldn't then see the gospel of Christ. Think about it. What stopped you seeing the gospel of Christ? Think about it for a minute. Maybe we should go on and have a look. But it was the law because the law was what they believed should be upheld. And when Jesus came and said, that isn't what you need to do anymore. They said, no way, we can't look at you, Christ, because your light actually is darkness to us. We need to carry on, carry on holding on to the law, which actually was blinding their minds to their truth. Oh, I hope I'm getting this over. I'm trying very hard. But it was the God of the age was the law of Moses, which, and probably, I would even go to, as far to say, all religion. Because whether we say that it was just the law of Moses, the law of Islam, the law of whoever, the moment we get stuck within a law of religion, it blinds our minds to there being any answer outside of that. So it's, we must do this, we must do that. We've got to keep up with this or otherwise we'll not qualify. And that's always what religions have done, isn't it? Say that this is what you have to do. And I believe that, and I've said it many times, Christ came and when he died and he said, it is finished, he was saying, that's it. Religion done away with once and for all. The new covenant is being brought in, which has nothing to do with the old covenant and like I say, we can attach this to the Jewish system if we want, but I would say it's attached to any old covenant of anything that says, in order to please the gods, please the gods. Is this making sense? Right, okay. Let's just have a look at a little bit uh, more of that. Can we carry on? So we've got, uh, so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Can we just carry on a little bit? For what we preach is now ourselves. No, it's not that, I don't think. Uh, go a bit more. Oh, no, it's not there. Right, which is the bit I wanted? There's something about the veil. Maybe it's further down here. Hmm. Right, hang on, let's move on. So, the issue is that the law, we are told, um, Sin comes through the law, because if the law hadn't been given, you wouldn't have been able to know what was right and wrong. Therefore, because of the law, we know what sin is. And then, of course, the, 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 the journey is when you sin, it brings forth death. 
So we have an issue here. Now, where I want you to take this, and I hope you're sort of hanging in there to follow me, and we'll come back to this Corinthians later. Make sense of that later, won't we? Um, in Revelations 20:14, it says this. Then death and Hades, which you can change that word to be whatever, the place, resting place of the dead or what have you, were thrown in to the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. And anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Now I've read all that for a reason. Because in one verse, you have got the gospel of most Christian churches, which is, forget about death and Hades thrown into the lake of fire, and the lake of fire is the second death, but this, anyone's name who is not found written in the Lamb's book of life are going to be thrown into the lake of fire. Is that not true? Is that not what you've heard, right? But first of all, we have this, then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. And I think to myself, okay, I'm not happy just to say, oh, I get the next bit, but I don't understand the first bit. So let's ask the question, so what is this death? Now, I think that we have an, an issue here because to me, the emphasis has been on death being the physical understanding of life being over. Would you agree? We think of death. Now, okay, we've been religiousized to say yes, but when a person sins, they die spiritually. So we have that bit as well. But most of the time when we talk about death, we understand it in the context of physically life being no more, don't we? And so um, we understand that death came into being because of, this, because of sin, because of the fall. We go back to the story of Adam and Eve and sometimes I don't want to go back there and I might not go back there in future, but right now I'm going there. That We understand the fall and death then came because of disobedience and we get the idea that then, because of this, death will only be defeated once Jesus has returned done whatever he's going to do, and then finally death will be no more. Because it's like, how can we sort of understand or be happy or uh, appreciate life while ever death is existing? Now the truth is, I think we're, we're barking up the wrong tree there because I think death is death. It happens, and I love what Patch Adams said on, on uh, when we showed the clip on Saturday night. Why are we so afraid of death? We're afraid of death because of our religious understanding. If we don't have the fears that religion has put on us, then we probably would celebrate death. But we don't because we're so afraid of what if, what if, what if, what if. Do you get me? And what is, where's that come from? It's come from religion. Okay, but let me move on. Um... We have this idea that, okay, once Jesus returns, then death won't happen anymore. People will sort of live forever in this wherever, and that's what will sort of fix everything. Um, but actually, in 2 Corinthians 3 verse 7, death, um, and we've already sort of um, talked about it a little bit, is actually given um, a name, and we've... Can you just put 2 Corinthians 3, 7, please? I feel as I'm 
get myself all tied up here. Is this making sense so far? Is it going all right? Um, 2 Corinthians 3. Now, if the ministry that brought death, which was engraved in letters on stone, came with glory, so that the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of his glory, though it was. Do you want to go to the next bit? Uh, where am I? Oh, will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? Right, just go back. Have you noticed what's happening? Now, if the ministry that brought death, what was the ministry that brought death? The law. I mean, it just like, poof. The ministry that brought death was the law. So we have the issue here that Paul is actually giving death a name and it's the law, right? So when we talk, and I know I'm sort of getting at me ahead of myself here, when he talks about death being thrown into the lake of fire, we're not talking about physical death, we're not talking about death as in a being, you know, pitchfork, um, what do you call him, father, t- what do you call him, grim reaper, we're actually talking about a thing, it's the law. Now, why was it? Why was the law the ministry that brought death? Well, first of all, because we could never live up to it. Never. And it ruined, ruined everything. Everything. Our lives would just talk about um, crushed by a weight of something that we could never achieve. That was the law. And no wonder it was called the ministry of death. But also... It was deathly because it got in the way of our, our ability to see God as he truly was. Now, don't you find that amazing? We couldn't see him. Now, we're getting to where I thought I was getting a minute ago about the veil, you see. The veil. Because he blinded the minds in order they couldn't see the light of the gospel, which was Christ! Oh! Sorry, I get excited, don't I? I have to wake you up. That's why. <laughs> um, right, so let's read on 2 Corinthians. This is where I was getting confused before. So, will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? If the ministry that brought condemnation was glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? For what was glorious has no glory now in comparison with the surpassing glory. Moving on, because I'm going to get to it hopefully soon. Uh, Keep going. Now we've had that bit. Just go go into four if necessary. Go to the end of chapter three. Well, go into four then. Heck. No, I'm looking for the veil and it was supposed to be in, the, in 2 Corinthians 3 onwards into chapter 4. Right, thank you. Right, and I've read this already. Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing because the God of the age has blinded the minds of unbelievers. Right, carry on a little bit now. So they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as... Where's the bit about Moses? (laughs) I've got to find the bit about Moses. (laughs) 
Come on, Moses, where are you? Go down a bit more. Oh, forget it. Right. The, the point is, it says, <laughs> you're going to have to find it for me. He says, whenever Moses is read, what is Moses? But it was the law. When you talked about reading Moses, it wasn't just a story about Moses. Moses was the law. And he says, every time Moses is read, suddenly a veil would descend. Why? Because it would cause them to not be able to see the truth of the gospel. That's why it was deathly. See? So, um, but then he says, um, but Christ was the one who was going to take this away. And, I, and it was supposed to be up there, but never mind. Is he there? Right, even to this day when Moses is read, oh, I'm really sorry, everybody. I'm rubbish, Anna. Um, it's in my heart, you see. I'm really sorry. It's in my heart and it's not on pieces of paper. Right. Oh, I'm sorry. It's there, look. Even to this day when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. That's why their minds are blinded, you see, because it's a heart thing, right? Not eyes, right? But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. What is the veil? It's the law, you see, that, which is the ministry of death. Um, now, the Lord is spirit, right, we'll leave it there. But do, do you get my point? Is it making sense? So, right. The law never wants grace to shine on anyone. The law stops you seeing with your heart and with your mind the, the light of the gospel. Now, if we go on to Isaiah 25... Uh, six to eight. I, I just think this is wonderful. And it just confirms a little bit that I was saying at the beginning, and you'll, you'll get me when we read it. Um, it says, and on, on this mountain, he will destroy, this is a prophetic word, the shroud that enfolds all people. Oh, isn't that awesome? The sheet that covers all nations. And then it goes into this. He will swallow up death forever. Now, don't you find it interesting that we've got a shroud, a sheet, and su suddenly death in, in the same sentence. We've got a veil going on, but it's saying this, that he will swallow up death, which I believe is talking about the sheet and the shroud, which was the veil, which was the law, the ministry of death. And it says he's going to swallow up death forever. Then the next verse to me is amazing. It says the sovereign Lord will wipe away tears from all faces. Now listen to me. I have only ever heard that verse said in respect to the end times when we're in heaven. And then all tears will be wiped away from their eyes. Right? As though it's something to do with future, when we all get to heaven, when death's going to be destroyed. But the point was, when we're in heaven, it's going to be destroyed anyway. So why is tears going to be wiped away? I think it's more likely that tears are wiped away when we're no longer under the law. Do you get that? It's absolutely fantastic. I don't cry anymore because I know that I can live my life without the condemnation of the law. That's why tears are wiped away. 
I still honestly believe that when somebody dies, we ought to cry. We should never be at the place where, oh, well, tears are driving away from our eyes because we don't cry anymore. Because we, you know, we should be affected by these things, shouldn't we? God is not saying, oh, I'm going to stop all death in order that you don't cry anymore. No, this is saying that death, which is the bondage of all nations, which is covering all people, I'm actually going to swallow it up because it's death comes from the law. Do you see? Then it says this, he will remove his people's disgrace, call that shame, from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. In that day, they will say, surely this is, this is our God. We trusted in him. Sorry. Um, and he saved us. This, uh, this is the Lord. Right. Swallow up death forever. Wipe tears from their eyes. That, I mean, that's just so, so wonderful. Now, um, there is talk about it. It is repeated in Revelation 21.4, which, as I say, is the one where most of the time is the go-to verse for this wiping uh, tears um, from their eyes. But I wonder how many tears are shed um, because of our religious fears and understanding in the context of because of the law, right, that when, when the law is not fulfilled, it therefore brings forth death. And if you've, if you've still got the veil over your eyes, that means that's what you're subjected to. That means you are constantly living in fear of everybody around you, of when you lose them, what does that mean? Is that making sense? Tears are wiped away now in the, condemn, in the context that there is no condemnation because I was only thinking the other day about the whole thing of universalism and Anthony and I have a, a different understanding of this, but I haven't, I haven't mentioned this to you yet. I was going to tell you tomorrow or sometime. But I was thinking, if basically the whole issue of, you know, people don't like universalism as a doctrine because they say that wouldn't be appropriate for everybody to be in, right? But the point is this, if there is no law to condemn anybody, there is nothing to, to condemn. I don't know, that seemed bigger than it was. <laughs> Does that make sense? If, if there is no law by which to measure and say either in or out, it means that it was taken away, death is swallowed up. End of the story for me. But I'll leave that one, we'll throw that in the box. Okay, talk about that one some more. So in Revelation, it does say he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the, old, for the old order of things have passed away. Now, I believe that if you put that to the future, it doesn't have as much power as if you bring it to now. What is the old order of things that has passed away? The old order of being measured by the law, which brings forth death, which does make you cry and does give you pain. I don't know. I'm throwing it into the pot for you. So um, we know that the revelation, the whole book of Revelation is about unveiling the Christ and the law was what covered him from being seen by the people. 
But we know, and I mean, I've always loved when Anne's brought the scripture, Jeremiah uh, 33 in the New Covenant, where it says in, uh, I don't know the verse, but it's 33, 34, I think. It says, no longer will you tell your brother, know the Lord, for they will all know him from the youngest to the oldest. Well, why is that possible? Because prophetically it's saying death is going to be swallowed up. And in essence, it's all going to be finished in Christ. Therefore, it's all going to be sorted. I, See, see what I mean? All right, so that means that when we talk, if, sorry, I've got to keep changing how I speak this. If we believe that that is a valid argument, that means when it talks about death being thrown into the lake of fire, what's it talking about? I believe it's talking about the law being thrown into the lake of fire. Now, you're going to say, yeah, but what's the lake of fire? I'm going to talk about that another time but if I just have a few minutes just to finish this today I know I've been talking a while but if I can just take a little bit more time because if we go back to that first scripture that we said there's a lot in that and it says um, anyone whose name was not found because it said death's going to be thrown into the lake of fire we haven't talked about the Hades bit which we'll do another time Um, it says the lake of fire is the second death and I've said we're not going to talk about the lake of fire tonight because all this is too lots to talk about. But the next bit that says this, anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Now again, aren't these things that have been used to terrify and control people? It's like, well, you're in today, but you might be blotted out tomorrow. Come on. That was my experience. It was my upbringing that be careful because yeah, you might be written in, but you might not be. Now we're going to talk about the book of life another time as well, because these are huge. See, in one, in one little scripture, in two sentences, you've got a mammoth amount of uh, things to talk about. But I do need to just quickly just bring this to an end by talking about uh, what else is going to be thrown into the lake of fire. So, Revelations 21.8 was my mother's favourite verse. And she, do you remember Dave or not? Thank you. Liars are first in the pit. She only, she only quoted the last bit. I mean, what a monkey. She only got the end bit. She didn't do the first bit. It was always liars. So if we were ever doing anything that was a little bit, you know deceitful or whatever, she'd, she'd just look at you and go, Revelations 21.8, she'd say. Bundle of laughs, isn't it? Yeah, bundle of laughs. So, I mean, she meant it in fun-ish. Um, but what I'm saying is that's how much she believed in the futurist idea that, um, let's have a look at it first, 21.8. Look at this, right, my mum got the bit at the end and all liars right? Look at that. Consigned to the fiery lake of fire of burning sulfur. But look at the first word. Cowardly. Unbelieving. The vile. Oh, do you know, isn't, aren't all these words just, you want to say after each one, what do you mean by cowardly? Next one, the unbelieving. What do you mean by unbelieving? Uh, the vile. What's vile? Because what's vile to you is not vile to me. Are you with me? It's all very wide, isn't it? Look at this. The murderers. 
we get that one. Starting to make sense now. We get it because none of us like the idea of anybody taking somebody else's life. So we're on that one. But we haven't been so far, have we? Murderers. Yeah, but what happens if they did it in self-defence? What happens if there was a reason? Are you with me? Come on, we could. Oh, yeah, but get down. That's another scripture. We're on this one, right? This is revelation. Right, okay. The sexually immoral. Oh, yes, we all know that one. Those who practice magic arts. Hello? Where's that sprung from? Those who are the idolaters. Oh, well, yeah, we know that. All those who don't worship the right God. But which is the right God? Are you with me? It's all a bit weird, isn't it? Um, and all liars. Oh, there we go. You know, we've got the liars in there. So you, you know. No, 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 it's there. It might be somewhere else. No, I think it was my mother who said they were first. Yeah. Yeah, she said they were first, but actually the last on the list anyway. But anyway, you're getting mad. Yeah, are you? Hey, I love this. You're actually starting to take part. This is nice. Oh, heckle me more often. I love it. Come on, I like this. But you get my point. That is a very specific list. And, it's, and look what it says, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulphur. Now, which is the, the second death. Oh, guess what? I've just lost me wherever I am. Oh, here we go. Right. So, we're going to forget about this. This is the second death. <laughs> oh, you know, the first one was bad enough. You know, let's, so we're going to have another one now. <laughs> so you can't have truly been dead the first time if you're going to have to have it the second time else you wouldn't experience it, would you? It's all very interesting. But hey, I, I hope we can make this a little bit fun. But, you know, it's, it's supposed to be serious. Heck, so this is the list. Now, I cannot believe that you end up with a list that is so, um, what's the word? It's, it's so varied to the point where you can't almost, I would not put a cowardly person in the same place as a murderer, for instance. Yet that is. And if we've got to make some sense of it, it can't mean what it means. And I only think it makes sense, and I'm saying I, only think it makes sense in the context of a, an event that was going on at the time of Jesus, which actually was able to say, look, this is what's going on. And if you are not um, listening to what's been said, you are going to perish. Now, follow me because we're not... I, I've got to try and get this over carefully. Right, so... Look at Revelations 22, uh, 15. I think you're going to see that there's a completely different light to look at all of these and you can go away and think about it yourself. Am I all right just for another? I know it's only half past eight, but I don't want to overload you with things. Um, so we've said that there's six very specific things going into the lake of fire, but go to 22:15, and I want to look at this. The verse before talks about basically this is the new Jerusalem and what have you, this is heaven sort of thing. But outside are the dogs, those who practice magic arts. Oh, have we heard these before? 
the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Oh, liars. We've got the liars. Ooh, got the liars. Right. So can you see how that in Revelation is very similar to the, the verse we said before? Now, I want to look at this. So who are the dogs? <laughs> now, isn't it interesting? Outside of the dogs. Now, if you go to um, uh, Philippians 3, verse 2, very interesting. It says, watch out for those dogs. Oh, we've got a reference here. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. Now, before we go into what we're talking about, we've got the fact that there's only eight times that the word dog is used in the New, uh, New Testament. And sometimes it's used in the context of the Canaanite woman where she came to Jesus and um, he said, why should I give you the bread that was meant for the children, i.e. The, the Jewish people, and give it to the dogs? Because this woman was a Canaanite woman and he had every right to say that because in essence, remember, if we're talking about the gospel of the kingdom, Jesus was coming to sort out the Jewish system to say, you've absolutely missed it. You've got, you've, where are you? And so he'd come. And that's why it's very clear that he says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. Now, people can take that and say, oh, that's not what that really meant. But if we take it in the context that he'd come to actually say, look, you lot, you've missed the boat. I've come to tell you and warn you. It was absolutely, I had every right to say, I'm only coming to these. But he actually called her a dog. Now, it wasn't being derogatory. It was a word that was often used for non-Jews. I think it's derogatory, but it wasn't derogatory at the time. But anyway, um, but going back now to what we said about Philippians 3, 2, watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. Come on, what is he talking about? Yes, circumcision. Brilliant. So isn't it interesting that Paul is using the word dogs that's in Revelation, who he says they're going to get thrown into the fire, to actually associate with people who were practicing circumcision. Now, come on, this is why I want you to look at this. Because in our heads, we have only ever understood the lake of fire to be associated with sin in the context of horrible acts. But we've got here, those who mutilate the flesh, i.e. circumcision, are going into the lake of fire. I think that that must give you a picture that we're not talking about what we think we're talking about. Surely. Because those who will practice circumcision weren't doing it out of being sinful. They did it out of the fact they were holding up the law. But what did the law then say? If you are circumcised, that means that you are a Jew. And if you are a Jew, you are in. Which meant they were using circumcision to be their salvation rather than it being something that was of a, uh, an authentic, genuine thing. So those mutilators of the flesh, those evildoers, 
watch out for those dogs. Are you with me? This is putting a totally different light on the lake of fire, which in my understanding was always, oh, well, you know, it's sinners, it's those. Well, let's just be honest, and I'm trying to be more honest. If anybody was going into the lake of fire, it was all those who just didn't accept Christ as their saviour. Let's just call it what it really is. That's the bottom line, wasn't it? You're all very quiet. That was the bottom line. But what we're finding is it's more intricate than that. So you think, woo, that's interesting. So if I was to put in there, just to save myself here, that therefore we can't be talking about the lake of fire in the context of an everlasting punishment place, futuristic, that's going to go on forever and ever. Just does not make sense. I'm nearly there, sorry. Um, so it's relating to all those found in the law, isn't it? So let's, let's look at it, the next thing. The next one is sexually immoral. Now, someone else, it talks about adulterers, but immediately we think of unfaithful spouses in the context of marriage. But that's not what Jesus is referring to at all. Now, when we look at Romans 7, we suddenly have this... Uh, and I, and, I, and I think I've probably written down the, the wrong thing here. So I'll skirt, I'll skirt it, but I'll give you my feeling. Is that all right? Because I think I've written down the, the wrong thing. Um, there's a, I think, oh, hang on. Is it Paul who's talking? There's a, there's a, a whole thing going on and, a, a, and a, 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 what do you call it when you're having a conversation going on? And then suddenly it's as though the conversation goes down a completely different track and you've suddenly got the whole topic of divorce and marriage going on. And as long as I've lived, and like I say, I'm 59 years old, it seems to be the go-to place to say whether Christians should be divorced or not, right? And so it's like, well, that must be the doctrine of divorce. It comes in in the middle of something unrelated, and you think, what on earth is that all about? But you see, what really was was going on here is when Paul is trying to say, look, when Christ came, he actually allowed you to die to the law. You were married to that law like a spouse, right? And so when Jesus came, he allowed that to die so you could be free to re- marry because it's all about whether you could marry again unless the spouse was dead and whether it was adultery and this that and the other but you see what we have is the people who had been given that gospel and told that they could be free connecting with the truth of the gospel but then going back which is what adultery are you, are you with me? I'm just trying to give you the words that are used so that they were freed from the law. They were free to remarry, but then they suddenly decided, nah. Which is just perfect example in those words. So we immediately put it into a human connotation that then says that anybody who has fallen, anybody who's struggled in that area, they're off in the lake of fire when it's actually talking about those who were the veil was lifted 
They saw the Christ, but then they decided to have an affair with the law. Now that puts a totally different light on this, doesn't it? Do you see it? Okay, now I know I'm not doing so good here. I'm trying my best, but um, uh, it was like going back to an old lover, put it, put it that way, when they had the veil lifted. But anyway, um, James 4, it puts it wonderfully because he says, you adulterous people. Oh, there we go. And Jerusalem was called the what? The great whore of revelation. Why? Because instead of warming and embracing the fact that the old spouse had died in order that they can be free, chose to go back. I, I hope I've, I've made that clear. Maybe Xanthi, you can do better on that one for me anyway. Okay, so moving on. So can you see how all these things are related to the upholding of the law? It's nothing to do with behavior per se. It's to do with a, um, a, an insistence on not letting the law go. And the law is the ministry of death. So what is the end result going to be? But death. See, makes sense, doesn't it? Now, I know there are other questions that come up. Let's just look at this magic arts and sorcerers. I've laughed at this over and over again because, you know, it was always, you know, it's not talking about people who read tea leaves and it's not talking about even witchcraft necessarily, although its implication is being spellbound. So there is an implication of it, but it says in... Um, uh, Galatians 3, what was what Paul said to them? He says, oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? So who are we talking about when it says about um, uh, magic arts and sorcerers? It's those who were bewitching people who had the veil lifted to go back to the law. Now, we would never say that that was sorcery, but in their book, that amounted to sorcery and magic arts. It was bewitching. And it even talks in Revelation, um, it, say, it talks about Babylon. And again, every time I then read another word, I think, well, there's a whole story behind all that as well. But it talks about Babylon. It says, by your magic spell, all the nations have been led astray. So was it meaning that Babylon with this group of, of witches or whatever? Of course not. They were a nation who, who had ideas and, and culture and whatnot, but it wasn't out of a, a wickedness that they did what they did. But what they did in the eyes of the person who is writing was tantamount to a mag putting a person under magic spell to pull them away. So basically, I would say that we all have to be careful that if when I give what I believe about my gospel pulls anybody away from seeing Christ in the light that he should be seen, which is incredibly uh, loving and benevolent and giving, I'm actually putting them under a spell, a magic spell. And I'm just, like I say, throwing, throwing it into the pot. Murderers, that seems obvious, but I don't know. What about the, the parables where it talks about those who killed the prophets, those who killed all those came with 
the gospel, sent to them with the word, but they killed them. So we're not talking about murder per se, but murder for to rid the truth from being exposed to the nations. So not murder is just in the context of any murder, but it's more specific. Now you'll have to go away and think about that. And then of course we've got liars, which we covered at the beginning because we talked about accusation, didn't we? Anybody who falsely accuses in the context of what is the truth, but won't let anybody see that truth, we have that in the context of um, uh, what was going on in the beginning. Right, I, I hope I've just showed you that all those six things which are in that first scripture in Revelation can be actually taken back to the specific time and an event that was going on with Jesus and the Jewish people at that time. And basically we could talk about, and we will do it another time, I don't know whether it'll be next week or what, what have you, but we have to now talk about then what was the lake of fire which all these things were thrown into. Did it happen or is it, to come um, and of course we can talk about the book of light this is interesting right so we said anybody who was not found in the book of life were thrown in the lake of fire um, but then there's a the scripture in Daniel that actually says everyone whose name is found in the book of life so we've got some are in some are out and we have to figure out what's the book what does the book mean? What, what does the book relate to? And I mean, it's, you know, much, much more, um, much more uh, complicated than we think. But I I'm, I'm hope I'm trying to break it down a little bit for you. Uh, and like I say, um, this Lake of Fire business is, is, is going to be very interesting um, because I think it'll take away the fear. All I'm trying to do in all, in all I do for myself and that which I bring for you is releases from the fear. It's not that I'm trying to figure out another gospel. I'm trying to find what is written there and can we actually get a, a revelation which um, truly expresses the heart of God as expressed through Jesus, who is the exact representation of him. So I'm going to stop there and I hope I'm confident confused you too much. I hope it's given you something to think about and we'll talk about the lake of fire another time. All right? <laughs> All right. Thanks for listening. You might not be aware that The Rock is funded completely through donations from people like yourself. So if you feel like you're part of our community, it would be great if you could make a contribution by visiting our website at www.rockofyork.co.uk and just click on the donate button for more information. Thanks again. Thanks again.